The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. Uh, when I was in high school, there were three subjects that, that I essentially found as my uh, reason for getting out of bed in the morning. The first was obviously choir, because I made a career out of it. The other was history and English uh, class. The, the latter, in my, two, in, in my mind, uh, seemed to overlap because there were so many, uh, they were so heavily dependent on the narrative. A narrative being uh, story driven. Uh, history, you'll find, it, it is just rife with stories. And the same with, with English class. And one of uh, my favorite activities to uh, go through in English class and history sometimes was the idea of comparing and contrasting, where you see how was one thing alike. Uh, how are two things alike and how are they different? Uh, you might, for example, in history class, talk about the, comparing and contrasting the, the developments of World War One compared to World War Two. Uh, in English, you might want to compare the uh, character qualities between uh, Hamlet and, and his uh, uncle Claudius in Shakespeare's Hamlet. And you can do that either in, in a uh, in sort of a chart, we have a left and a right side comparing and contrasting, or sometimes you'll even find these in Venn diagrams. And we're only midway through the second chapter right now of uh, 1 Samuel. And if we were to do a literary analysis of the historical uh, stories that we are finding here, we would see that the compare and contrast is, is rather lopsided. Uh, it is more so a, a story of contrast. And the book of 1 Samuel, throughout the entire book, will be a series of, of contrasts. Uh, we've already seen that up to this point. We, we saw that Hannah was barren, and her sister wife, Penina, was very fertile. We've seen that uh, Hannah was humble and lowly. Penina was prideful and very rude. We've seen that Hannah was, was holy and dedicated to the Lord. Eli the priest is rather ambivalent about the faith and rather apathetic, as we're going to see more and more here. Uh, these descriptions of the major contrasts are going to dominate this book, uh, but the author for today is driving home the, the point that there are really only two ways to live. In one sense, we can live disparaging the grace of God and rejecting it and going our own way. That is the way that leads to death. Or we can humble ourselves and find uh, the grace of God and just delight in his beauty and his goodness and his character and his love for us in Christ Jesus. And that choice is before us. The goal of this passage is to help, uh, is to help you pass on the self-serving uh, God-rejecting nature that our culture is living by today and rather be so enamored by the grace of God that you would never want to leave it at any point in your entire life. There's three ways to look at that today. The first is, is that we need to be wary of, tri of trivializing God's grace. We need to be wary of trivializing God's grace. Uh, verse 11 kicks things off by bringing us back to the scene that we, laugh, uh, that we left off on last week. Hannah had been barren. She had been ridiculed for uh, her infertility. And the Lord miraculously opened up her womb and she gave birth to Samuel. And true to her word, she takes Samuel after he is weaned to the temple to essentially give him to the priest Eli to train up this boy and being a priest for the Lord. 
And in uh, verse 11, we see that they're about to say their goodbyes. And it says that Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of the priest Eli. Now that's a pretty remarkable statement. Because Samuel at this point was somewhere between the ages of three and five years old. And here his parents who love the Lord and have decided to dedicate him to the Lord have basically uh, got, gotten into the car and left him in the, 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 uh, the admonition or the, the training of this uh, priest, Eli. And it tells us, and it shows us, how much and how important it is that Elkanah and Hannah nourished Samuel in the Lord before they let him off to go to Eli. And it ought to give rise to our understanding of the importance of children's ministry. There are many characters throughout the Bible, and I don't say characters as if they're fictitious. And there are many individuals in the Bible in which the importance of their story is brought about uh, by telling the story of their birth and their childhood. We see it in Isaac. We see it in Jacob. Uh, we see it in. Uh, we see it also in Samson. We see it in Samuel, and we see it in John the Baptist. And we chiefly see it in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no more formative time for a soul than from the moment that they are born until they, they uh, reach the end of their adolescence. And as parents and grandparents and caregivers, as well as church members and ministry leaders, we ought uh, to prioritize the importance of ministry to children. The Josephs and the Samuels of tomorrow need to start today. The other remarkable thing here is that the text says that he served the Lord in the presence of Eli. From, from what we know about Eli's story, this is a miracle within itself. Eli was not in the running for the Father of the Year award, nor is he uh, in the running for being uh, on the plaque for one of the best high priests that they have ever had. If anything, his record is a stain on the annals of religious history. Yet somehow, Samuel, even at this very, very young age, thrived in the Lord under Eli. And if we were to stop there, everything would look pretty good. Happy times are here again, but yet in verse 12, we find that things are not getting better, but rather that we find that things are spiraling faster and faster out of control in the land of Israel. Eli's sons, it says in verse 12, were wicked men. No, no, we need to hold on in here for a second. Because Eli is the, the high priest of the, of the nation here. He is the one that is responsible for training up the entire nation to know the Lord and to fear the Lord. And he has uh, given up on his priority, uh, priorities in that. They lived in Shiloh, which was the central place of worship, and given the succession of uh, priests and how it was supposed to go, Hophni and Phinehas were serving as priests then as well. One of them were bound to become the high priest at some point. Their job was to minister to the Lord and to the people by providing the, the practices by which God's grace was delivered to the people. 
to administer forgiveness and atonement for sins. Yes, yet this text tells us that they were wicked men. The literal term there in the Hebrew is that they were sons of Belial, which is a term that essentially means that they were sons of worthlessness. They had nothing to offer. And how were they wicked? Well, first of all, it tells us that they did not respect the Lord. And that isn't really the best translation that we have here. The way that we should uh, think about this is that they did not know the Lord. And it's not as if they didn't know Yahweh's name or what he had been like for God's people. It's a relational term. So when we say that they did not know the Lord, it's that they had absolutely no relationship with the Lord. And furthermore, they didn't give a rip about a relationship with the Lord. The Lord was rather a means to an end to serve their selfish tendencies. It was even worse than apathy since they abused their authority. Look at verse 12. Again, Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the Lord's uh, or the priest's share of the sacrifices of the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling. They plunged it into the container, the kettle, the cauldron, cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. So here's what is happening historically. The average Joe, like Elkanah, would bring his family to Shiloh, and they would offer up sacrifices, much yeah, like Elkanah and Hannah. And this was a very, very sacred thing for families together in order for their relationship with the Lord to be intact. And after the sacrifices were made, there would be a post-sacrificial meal in which they would eat the meat that was sacrificed. Now, according to Leviticus 7, there were provisions by which the priests were able to have the breast and the right thigh that was their uh, portion since they their livelihood depended on them being But here, Hockney and Phineas, they instituted a different custom. They had a lackey show up when the meat was boiling and take this three-pronged fork and, and shove it in there and whatever came out would bring to Hockney and Phineas. And they were indiscriminate in this practice. Look at verse 14. It says, This is the way that they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Now, it's interesting because the word uh, custom or tradition or, or different translations say it literally means justice. So understand what's happening here. These priests, their justice is theft. Their justice is taking advantage of these provisions that the Lord had put for his people. And it just wasn't everyday hard-working people that they were stealing from. Notice also that they were stealing from God in verse 15. It says, even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, give the priest some of the meat to roast because he won't accept any, any boiled meat from you, only raw. So in the sacrificial system of Israel, uh, some of the meat went to the man who was doing the sacrifice, some of it went to the priests, and there were certain parts that went to God. And those were the, the, the really bad parts. And why is that? Because the fat is where it's at, right? 
I mean, that's the good stuff on the, well, I like that kind of stuff on the meat. And this is kind of gross, but when you look at a T-bone steak, I'm all about that little small portion on the side of the bone that's just a little bit more pretty. I love it. Folks, you do too. Think about bacon. What makes bacon good? Point taken. And God knows this as well. So in the sacrificial system, it's all his. And yet, Hophni and Phineas were claiming it for their own. And to add to this, verse 16 is very explicit, that if anyone had the guts to even challenge them and say, no, no, this isn't right, you can't take this meat, they would literally threaten them with violence that they were going to take this, regardless of, of the stand that these people uh, would, would take. So instead of fostering a faith that is that is freeing. Rather, they are fostering a faith that is rooted in fear and authoritarianism. And we'll see here in a few minutes how their abuse of power uh, from stealing led to sexual abuse. But for now, we'll take note, take note of the commentary in verse 17. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord. Because the men treated the offering with contempt. Now I want to warn you that biblical narratives are very dangerous. They run the risk of being one of those signs that you see on the highway that says food and gas next exit, and it's got the list of the fast food uh, joints that you could go to, and you might be really hungry and you're just waiting to find the right place, and you might uh, see a sign that has something like Taco Bell and Arby's or whatever, you're like, no, I don't want Taco Bell or Arby's, we're just going to keep going until we can find something that we want. And we do that in our Bible reading sometimes too. We see stories like this, I think I'm just going to keep going until I can find something that I want to get out of. But we need to slow down. We need to get off on this exit because Hophni and Phineas are not unlike you and I. We can be tempted to think that their biggest sin was stealing and potential violence, but it's way deeper than that. The sacrificial system was set up as a means by which God and his people could reconnect in relationship and be reconciled. And it was uh, the avenue of grace by which God extended the olive branch to his people. And Hophni and Phinehas trivialized it. God's means of forgiveness and redemption, they used it for their own perverted means. And obviously this has enormous implications for church leadership. And I could rattle off name after name after name after name of pastors who have fallen in, uh, in light of this. Pastors you would know as celebrity pastors. Some have now fallen away from the faith. Some have ruined their relationships. Some have left terrible trauma in their wake. There's even a few that have succumbed to suicide. The struggle is real. However, for the vast majority of us, this text tells us that if we have recognized our sin and we have received Jesus, 
We have seen that indeed he is gracious, that he is merciful, that he is slow to anger, and that he is abounding in steadfast love and kindness. We ought not to trivialize that grace. We ought not to just put it to the side. And we can do that when we neglect the seriousness of our sin. It's one thing to, uh, to unknowingly sin. It's another thing to say, uh, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to engage in it because I know that God is forgiving and he's loving and he's going to forgive me for doing it. That is taking advantage of God's grace. Romans 6 Verses 1 through 2 tells us how or what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have tied to sin still live in it? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31 says, For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who is regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance is mine, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what are we to do? We return to the grace of God. First John chapter 2 tells us this. And I'm writing to you for his purposes, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that's the best news that we can have. So we need to be wary of trivializing God's grace. But we also need to find light in the darkness. Would you believe me if I told you there was no such thing as darkness? If I told you that darkness as a unique physical entity doesn't actually exist, would you believe me? No one has ever accused me of having a scientific mind. But... I find it fascinating that if you ask any physicist, they will tell you that there's no such thing as darkness, but rather darkness is defined as the absence of light. And there are times in life that it feels like darkness has dominion. But if we take seriously here what these verses in, in verses 18 through 21 and 26 tell us, as well as the entirety of, of all of Scripture, then we have to see whatever it is that we're facing, whatever we're struggling with, simply just lacks light. And we need to find that light. The contrast that we find here in this passage um, is where we ought to draw our encouragement from. Now remember the setting here. God's people had been brought into the promised land that God had promised Abraham 
all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. They had been delivered out of the, the mighty hand of Pharaoh, and they had been brought into uh, the promised land, and God had defeated every enemy that came their way. But yet in the judges' period, they rejected God, and then God sent a, a nation to overtake them. They uh, wanted a deliverer. God provided the deliverer. They then believed. They then sinned. God brought in a nation to overtake them. God sent a deliverer. And there's a cycle that happens over and over again in the book of Judges. And as we go through the book of Judges, this cycle of, of, of sin, uh, sin, judgment, remorse, and, and uh, redeemer continues to get uh, worse and worse and worse. And now here at 1 Samuel 2, the fat is about to hit the fryer. And we've just read about the, the treachery here of, of Hophni and Phinehas. And the action is going to start picking up very quickly. And God's people are going to be in a very bad place here very quickly. Yet here in verse 18, there's a glimmer of hope. Whereas the nation's falling apart, God has already provided the, uh, for the time being, the Redeemer. Things are falling apart over here, but God is doing something in the silence of the day to deliver his people. Samuel says here in verse 18, Samuel served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in a linen ephod. And an ephod is what the, the, uh, the priests would wear. That was like their, their, their priestly uh, garb. And so whereas these adult priests are running roughshod over everything that is sacred and everything that is holy, this child here is the face of redemption. He is God's work at this point. Eli's family represents everything that is wrong with Israel here. And in these verses, we see that Samuel's family is exactly what God desires. Look at verse 19. Each year his mother would, uh, she make him a little robe uh, that goes over the ephod and took it to him when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, and the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one that she's given to the Lord, and then they go home. God is using simple, normal people to move mountains. And it ought to give rise to our thoughts when we consider that even in the darkest moments of, of our individual lives, God has already turned on the flashlight. When verses 21 and 26 point us to the fact that Samuel is serving as a type of Christ, of the one who is to come. Look at verse 21. The boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. That he grew up, he, being Jesus, grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Look at verse 26 of our passage here today. The boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Now that ought to scream to us for those of us that have read Luke 2, 52. Because Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Boy, this sounds familiar. God is doing something in this Samuel here. Samuel was pointing towards better days for Israel one in which a king would reign 
who is after God's own heart. In Jesus' incarnation, he was pointing not just to better days, but complete transformation. Not because he was a man after God's own heart, but because he had God's own heart in being fully God and fully man. And because he had God's heart, he lived a sinless life for us. He died a brutal death for us. He rose from the grave for us. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God right now and reigns for us. We will not have to suffer ultimate death, which is separation from God. In Him, we have forgiveness. In Him, we know that this is not all that there is. In Him, our shame is, dissip is dissipated. In Him, we find true life. And it's given to us by God's grace through faith in Christ. He may choose to not take you out of whatever situation that you're facing, but he promises the light of himself. And with him, you can walk through the darkest places. And so we need to find the light in Jesus. And third and finally, we need to hear, repent, and trust now. Hear, repent, and trust now. Now this text ends by going back to this really sad story of Eli and his sons. And as much as I would love to end our time together on an encouraging note, the text demands that we leave here rather than one. There are two ways that we can walk out here today. We can walk toward death, or we can walk toward death. For his part, Eli confronted the sins of his past and in regards to his parenting. It seems that throughout the years, he's had sort of a laissez-faire attitude with his children where he, he wasn't real involved in their discipline. My guess is, is that growing up, these two children were literally little hellraisers in the house not listening to mom or dad, and mom or dad not doing anything about it. Because now, it comes to haunt them. Observe in verse 22, that in addition to defiling these sacrifices, these two men are also abusing their office by making the worship center a brothel. It says, now Eli was very old. And he heard about everything the sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, cultic prostitution was a very, I don't mean it's a good thing, but it was a very normal thing in the ancient Near East. The, the, the neighboring communities, it was a normal part of worship. However, whether he is these two are engaging in cultic prostitution or just filling their own weird desires, uh, sort of goes against the point. It's hard to tell, but one thing that we do know for sure is that Hophni and Phineas were taking everything that was sacred, everything that was good about what God was doing, and they completely perverted it and, and ruined it. And how does Eli 
the priest and their father take care of it with weak words. He says to them, why are you doing these things? I have heard about your evil actions from, from all the people know my sons. The news I hear in the Lord's people spreading is not good. So evidently their sin is famous. They had no problem taking the sacrifice by force, and Eli was afraid to consecrate the place by taking the temple by force back from God. He may be old, but he could certainly send people to take care of that job for him. And notice the perversion also. He simply says to them, we're having sex in the temple and destroying the God, God's uh, provision of, of the sacrificial system. And he says, this news is not good. Remember when Hannah was praying in, in the temple and she was, she was so distraught that she was mouthing words but she wasn't making any noise and Eli came up to her and accused her of being drunk and wanted to get her out of there basically. So he's willing to kick out a holy woman who was praying to God in her anguish. He's not willing to do anything about these priests who are defiling everything that is good. And even in his weak leadership, he says something profound that we ought to underline in our Bibles and in our hearts. Verse 25, if, and if, if one person sins against another, God will intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So what this means is, is that when there's a conflict between uh, uh, two people on a horizontal level, God or a third person can come in and mediate for them. But what happens if that person that is down here and God is up here have a conflict? Who's going to win? It's not going to be us. It is always going to be God. And that's the last word from Eli on this matter. And they fall into the same pattern that they always do. I forget Dad, he doesn't know what he's talking about. We're going to continue doing what we want to do when we want and how we want to do it. But this time there's a twist. God is ready to win. Verse 25. But they would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. Don't confuse the ground word here. The word since or because provides the reason for something. They may have disobeyed and not listened to Eli their entire life, but their sin has finally caught up to them. In this case, their failure to heed Eli's words was not even willful on their part. They rejected Eli's words because God intended to kill them. We can't mince that here. That's one thing about God that we don't like to think about, and that is his justice. He is incredibly patient, and he's incredibly kind. Romans 2, verse 5 tells us, do you, not dis do, uh, do you despise the riches of his kindness and his restraint and patience, not recognizing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But for these two, 
they have come to a point which repentance is no longer an option. You see, we can we can love our sin so much that there comes a point in which God puts up his hands and says, you know what, I'm done. It's yours now. If you look at Romans chapter 1, there are three times in Romans chapter 1 where it says that God gave them over to their passions. Well, what a judgment that is, that God gives you over to the things that you love more than him. It's hard to even fathom. So if you're here and you're breathing and you're listening, don't put this off. This is, a, this is a case study in the contrast between life and death, and the option is right in front of you. Wherever you are stuck in, whatever life has given you, Jesus came to this world as Savior and Redeemer. He lived, he died, he rose from the dead, and ascended so that life does not have to keep going in the direction that it is. That it is. There is hope, and there is goodness, and there is grace of, in God through Jesus Christ, and it is received by faith. If there's anything that we need to take from this place, it's that, uh, this, this passage, is that we should not disparage God's grace. We should receive it and live. Let's pray today.